Let's open the Word of God to Isaiah and its ninth chapter, the prophet of Isaiah and chapter 9. We have 21 verses before us. We will try to cover 19 this morning, and we will leave two of them for the second service. Verses 6 and 7. They deserve extra special treatment, and they're perfect for approaching the Lord's Supper. Isaiah chapter 9. We have a book before us that in these four chapters of chapters 7 through 10 is describing the mighty Assyrian Empire being used as God's chastening rod upon Israel first and then upon Judah as well. And it was Assyria that took the ten tribes called Israel captive and dispersed them in the earth and they will reach all the way through the land of Judah and surround the city of Jerusalem, which we have just studied last Sunday was the head, but would not take the nation of Judah, because God left that to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But we want to remember that about these four chapters, 7 through 10. But today we have 9. And the theme of chapter 9 is, in those 21 verses before you, in the midst of righteous judgment for national sins, God foretold about His Son and a glorious kingdom coming. In the midst of it, because there's a lot of judgment around verses 6 and 7, especially following verse 7 of God's judgment upon Israel. Let me briefly tell you what I sent you yesterday about a simple division of the chapter. Verses 1 through 5 have precious promises for dark, darkened, blinded, dim Israel. Verses 6 and 7 are about the Messiah and His glorious kingdom. Two great verses about Jesus Christ. Many know verse 6 well. Many can probably quote verse 6, but they're not as familiar with verse 7, which deserves to go right along with it. The two of them together are a powerful, wonderful prophecy and promise about Jesus Christ. Then in verses 8 through 12, we have Israel judged for stubborn pride. And it will be identified there in verses 8 through 12, those five verses, stubborn pride, but God is still looking for their sins to judge them. So 13 through 17, another five verses, are Israel judged for their rebel hypocrisy. And then the final four verses are Israel judged by insatiable, selfish cruelty toward each other. But notice I changed a preposition. It's not Israel judged for that. It's Israel judged by that. Because it's God himself that is going to turn them against each other to their own ruin. And righteously and rightly so. Let's look at these first five verses. It's my job to preach the word to you. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Let's see if we can accomplish that today in these 21 verses. I read to you the first five. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation. When at the first 
he lately afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. These are the words of the living God. These are the words of our Creator. We want to understand them as well as we're able in the few minutes that we spend here. Verse 1, nevertheless, and that nevertheless is a disjunctive setting it in opposition to the last two verses of chapter 8. Look at Isaiah chapter 8 where we ended up last Lord's Day. Verse 21, and they shall pass through it that is, their land hardly bestead and hungry, that sorely pressed, terribly troubled and hungry. And it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. This is God's judgment on Israel and the ten tribes and he poured it on them. He darkened them, and he troubled them, and he filled them with anguish. And it's called the dimness of anguish. They're just under a burden of oppression from God through their enemies to destroy them for not loving and serving him like they should have. But we come to the first word of chapter 9, and it says, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as... So it's giving us a timeline. And there are three spots on the timeline. There is on this timeline at your left. That would be over here. And we're going to progress to the right as most timelines generally go. But if we look at the left, we first of all spot when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Then... There's a second point on the timeline, moving to the right, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea. And the point at the right of the timeline that is beyond both of these is the nevertheless point. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be like either one of those. It would have been lessened for point number three. So we've got lightly afflicted, grievously afflicted, and then some other dimness and darkness that's not quite the same as the first two. When we think about the history of Israel and Assyria, 
We can start with Paul, which I haven't wasted your time with. He's in the Bible, P-U-L. And Tiglath-Pileser is one of the early kings. And they lately afflicted Israel before God sent them to ravage the nation. So it was called lightly afflicted, and then it was going to be grievous affliction so that Shalmaneser came and overthrew the city of Samaria, which was the capital of the ten tribes, or Israel. And then Shalmaneser took the land of Israel and dispersed them in the earth. And then Esarhaddon, the son of Sennacherib, came and dispersed them even further. So it was a long, drawn-out, 65-plus-year timeline for the first two points of lightly afflicting the area of northern Israel because we've had mentioned to us two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun, and both of them are to the left or to the east of the Sea of Galilee. I wish I had a map in front of you, but I don't want you being distracted by other aspects of the map. But when you look at Israel, it is a narrow nation that runs north and south, and it has in it the Jordan River running down from north to south, and it has the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea at the bottom of that Jordan River. And as you come up the Jordan River from the Dead Sea, you've got Jerusalem to your left, and you come on up to Galilee. And when you're in the area of Galilee, and you look east to the left of Galilee, between Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, you have several tribes, and two of them are Zebulun and Naphtali. And in those two tribes, and in the larger area called Galilee, which is the territory around the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Tiberias in your Bibles, same sea, you see Capernaum, you see Nazareth, and you see Cana. Better not say any more yet. That's verse 2. We don't want to get to verse 2 yet. We want to be at verse 1. But I want you to think about the geography. We're not in Judah. We're up in Israel. We're north of Judah. We're north of Samaria. We're up beside the Sea of Galilee. We're 70 miles away from Jerusalem. Nevertheless, though the judgment of verses 21 and 22, and please remember, Isaiah did not write these words between chapters 8 and 9. He did not write chapter 9. He didn't do that. We have it, and it's a useful tool for us to find places in the Bible, but we have the word nevertheless right after the darkness and the dimness of verse 22 of chapter 8. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when God was punishing Israel by Assyria, when at the first, with Paul and Tiglath-Pileser, he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward, with Sennacherib, Shalmaneser, and Ezarhaddon, did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. And the sea there is the Sea of Galilee, because we're dealing with a relatively limited geographical area. Nevertheless, makes a difference from the dimness stated there 
at the end of chapter 8. Terrible judgment was going to fall on Israel that we learned last Sunday in chapter 8 for their rebellion, their idolatry, and their enchantments. Remember in verse 19, we have necromancers wanting the people to inquire of the dead what was going to be the future of their nation. Israel's vexation began lightly. If we go back before Paul, the Assyrian, we have Ben Hayden, the Syrian, and others, but it got worse until the whole land was overthrown. And the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 were, until Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. So the vexation, the affliction of this northern part of Israel, the ten tribes, was going to get so severe that they would be broken, it would be no longer a people. And so the light beginnings of taking some captive were lightly afflicting it, but then it was more grievously afflicted. Lightly, grievously, nevertheless, the dimness would be less than both times. But dim and dark, nonetheless. Now look at 2 Kings, holding your place at Isaiah 9, of course. Look at 2 Kings chapter 15. I have done my best not to ask you to turn to too many places, though I may quote them or refer to them, because I want to keep your minds and your eyes on Isaiah 9 until it is fixed, both visually and mentally, in your minds. In 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 29, in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, the ten tribes, the northern tribes, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ijon, and Abel-Beth-Meacah, and Genoa, and Kedesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. So see, if we'll read the whole Bible, there's a historical section of the Bible that will help us out a great deal to know that God lightly afflicted, then more grievously afflicted, and then relaxed his judgment. So we come to verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them hath the light shined. Verse 22 of chapter 8 told us about darkness, dimness, and again, darkness. And there's dimness mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 9, but the people that walked in darkness, the people in the area of Galilee, the people in the area of Naphtali and Zebulun saw a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, because that's about all they experienced for a long time, upon them hath the light shined. And so a light shone upon that part of the world. Naphtali and Zebulun, Galilee, to the east, to the left on a map of the Sea of Galilee. A light shined. Thank you, Lord, for that light. Thank you, Lord, that you have extended that light far beyond that region of the earth, even to us today, where we bask in all the rays that he ever intended for us to know 
by having the completed scriptures of both testaments and 66 books of record of what he's given to us. They didn't even have the book of Isaiah. What we're reading, they didn't have until this third point on the timeline. I hope that helps you to see lately afflicted by the Assyrians, then more grievously afflicted by them until they were no longer a people, and then they'd be eased up on by the Lord of heaven, and he would burst forth in a great light. In verse 2, verse 2 is wonderful. God pounded the Galilean area of Israel for their sins, but to it he sent his only son. Do you know where Jesus first preached? According to Matthew's gospel. Right here, in this area, a great light shined. The light of the world shined. He was raised in Nazareth. That's where Joseph and Mary were from. He was raised in Nazareth. It's in the Galilean countryside, far from Jerusalem. That's why they were looked on and despised. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Those backwoods, redneck fishermen and country folk from up there, those hill people. He was raised in Nazareth, Nazareth, and then he went and lived in Capernaum, both in the prophesied region. Where did he perform his first miracle? Cana of Cana of Galilee. Oh, yes. Do you love him? Is he precious to you? God in the flesh came to earth. And he came to this part of the world. When he opened his mouth and began to preach, it was in this part of the world. Where did he do his second miracle? In Galilee. Do you know what it, it, it's identified that way in the Bible? It's the nobleman's son of Capernaum. It's in John chapter 4. He turned the water to wine in John chapter 2. He healed the nobleman's son in John chapter 4 after leaving the woman of Samaria and continuing north back to Galilee. When he went to Judea, what did he go for? Well, other than souls, what did he go for? For the great feasts of the Jews. But when the feast was over, what would he do? Invariably, back to Galilee. Those people he loved. And a great light shined there. The people that walked in darkness. Look at Isaiah. Every chapter we've come to so far, when he's in the middle of judgment, he wants to insert some promise of beauty and glory and salvation. Right. So we have darkness in verse 22, but it's not going to be, it's going to be a little lighter in verse 1, and then a great light's going to shine in verse 2. And you know what's coming in 6 and 7, even if you don't know what's coming in 3 through 5. We'll get there in just a moment. But look at that verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so Isaiah, in these 66 chapters that begin and end with judgment, have so much salvation in the interior, in the middle, interspersed. And you want to be looking for it. We've got one verse here that is sort of by itself, but not really, about the great light shining. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 4. Matthew 4. Is that toward the front end of your New Testament? Matthew chapter 4. Now Matthew chapter 1 is a genealogy. Matthew chapter 2 is Herod and the wise men. 
Matthew chapter 3 is John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. Did Jesus have to travel to get baptized? You often have to travel to find a Baptist preacher with enough water. There's two things usually missing, a Baptist preacher and enough water. And so Jesus had to leave, it says it, he had to go to Jordan in Judea where John was baptizing at Bethabara, remember? What does Bethabara mean? The ford. How deep is the water in a ford? Waste. Oh, that's a perfect baptistry. That's in John chapter 1. This is Matthew. Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3. In the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4, he is led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil before he enters upon his public ministry. When does his public ministry commence then? Matthew 4.12 Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, are you getting excited? You should be getting excited. If you love the Lord Jesus, precious to you, look at what Matthew's writing to us. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he mentions Nazareth, he mentions Capernaum, he mentions the seacoast, which we had back there in 9-2. And this is Jesus after he was tempted by the devil, right after he was baptized. This commences his ministry. Verse 14, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Amen and amen. So, on our timeline, lightly afflicting 600 years B.C., grievously afflicting 550 years B.C. or so, I'm rounding off. Okay, I'll make 650, 600, 26 A.D. 26 A.D. It was not as dim. They weren't going to enchantments. They weren't going to necromancers. They were worshiping in an S-word in each of their cities. Synagogues. They're worshiping in synagogues. They weren't worshiping idols. What happened to Israel? It wasn't as dim. But it was still dark compared to the light of the gospel. Compared to the light of the gospel, it was still dark, but it was not as bad as it had been, and Jesus Christ burst on the scene. He comes He goes down there and gets baptized by his cousin. His cousin says, no way. You should be baptizing me, Lord. And John said, no. I mean, Jesus said, this is the way it should be right now to fulfill all righteousness. And the Lord's talking to John. He's truly getting a word of wisdom. And that is the Holy Ghost is going to descend upon your cousin and he's going to remain. And when you see the Holy Spirit descend on him and remain, you may declare that he is the Lamb of God, the Messiah of Israel. Right. And so John did that. And that's pulling together all the gospel accounts, especially John chapter 1. But a great light burst forth. And that light is the Lord Jesus Christ. His ministry was the life of light. 
The light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, but we comprehend it. Thank and praise the God of heaven that the light of the Lord Jesus Christ we see, we understand, we believe. He has saved us from all the darkness of this world. We just had read to us Revelation chapter 13, verses 4 through 10 by our brother Chris, and that is darkness when men follow the beast of the Roman pagan empire and then the Roman papal empire and all the darkness of those empires motivated and empowered and energized by the dragon, the devil himself. And Jesus Christ burst on the scene and saved us from them. He continued 42 months. 42 times 30 is 1260 for 1260 years of the dark ages. The beast of Rome, pagan, then papal, by the power of the devil, persecuted the saints of God, but we've been saved from it by the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the prophecies of John and Jesus included the great light that they would bring. Jesus first went to Judea to get baptized, and then he was back to Galilee, and he told Peter that. The days are very... Look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Don't get off track, Pastor. Don't get off track. John 1.43, he has met Simon Peter. How did he meet Simon Peter? Andrew brought Simon Peter to him. A brother saved a brother. Verse 43, the day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Notice where Jesus wants to go. Jesus wants to go back to Galilee. He's been baptized. It's time to go home. It's time to go back to Isaiah 9, 2 to fulfill it. And then in verse two, chapter 2 and verse 1, in the third day, there was a marriage in Cana. I want you to remember that when we went through these chapters of John, Jesus is moving. Jesus is baptized. He's been tempted, and he wants to preach. And he goes and preaches in Galilee of the Gentiles and Galilee of the nation. It was called Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles because of all the immigrants the king of Assyria had brought in and the surrounding nations right there at that point because we are at the upper end of Israel. And so they had them intermingled with them and they were surrounding them, Gentiles and and otherwise known as nations. We are back to Isaiah chapter 9. There is no light like gospel light. No truth like gospel truth. And it's all about God's Son. Get this initial prophecy into your mind so that we can grasp the climactic conclusion of 6 and 7. This light that burst forth. And how Matthew chapter 4, remember the New Testament is our commentary on the Old Testament. And we trust that New Testament to tell us exactly what was intended by this dimness and this light bursting forth of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And we were told, Matthew, thank you. God, the Holy Spirit, Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Spirit giving us Matthew 4, verses 12 through 16. And so I hope you have that timeline in front of you so that you can look at verse 1. That's easy. You can look at verse 2. That's easy. And hopefully you have Matthew 4, 12 through 16, either in your center column references, or you can put it there. I go to verse 3. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil.
Isaiah 9.3. Just keep in mind the timeline that I gave you. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. To interpret and apply this verse, we've got to look to Jesus' time due to the surrounding context. We've got Jesus' generation in verses 1 and 2. We've got Jesus' generation in verses 6 and 7. We are not going to jump to some other generation. We're going to let that control us. What's in 6 and 7 and what's in 1 and 2 to know that it's the beginning of the New Testament era. The people, verse 3, thou hast multiplied the nation. The king of Assyria took them captive. The king of Assyria dispersed them. The king of Assyria broke the, broke the nation so that they were no longer a people. But they struggled back, and he regathered them slowly. And he did that, and you know he did that. He multiplied the nation. They had been stripped of Jews and Israelites and replaced with Assyrians, but they, some of them straggled back. And so they were there, and there was a pretty good population when Jesus Christ was there. Where did Jesus feed the 5,000? Was that in a Colosseum in Jerusalem when he fed the 5,000? Or was that in Galilee? How many men were there? 5,000. Besides women and children that it wants us to know. So there was a crowd there of 10, 15, 20, 25,000 people. And that's in John chapter 6. We're told that it's right there in the vicinity of Nazareth and Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. He had multiplied the nation. He had, he had brought re stragglers back. They had reproduced. Remember, it's been 650 years because he had pulled the oppression off them. It was, it was not as dark. It was less dim than it had been. And so they were growing again. He had delivered them from the Assyrians because he crushed the Assyrians with the Babylonians. And then he crushed the Babylonians with the Persians, and he crushed the Persians with the Greeks, and he crushed the Greeks with the Romans. And so they had had some time to grow and multiply as a nation. As a nation. I hope you'll remember that. As a nation does it say that. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. While Israel was never again a nation by itself, the region of Galilee did recover and along with Zebulun, Naphtalim, and the other tribes there, joined with Judah, there was a nation of Israel. There was a Palestine. There was a people of Israel. The population of the whole land of Israel had grown by Jesus Christ time to millions. How many died in the siege of Jerusalem? Died. 1.1 million. Just in that city. And remember, Vespasian had taken his time taking a circuitous route for a couple of years through Judea, wiping out city by city and approaching to Jerusalem. Right. But there was still 1.1 million to die and 93,000 to take into slavery. He had multiplied the nation. There were huge crowds that followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus visited many synagogues in those northern cities. You know, when he went to Nazareth, into the synagogue. When he went to Capernaum, into the synagogue. 70 miles away from Jerusalem. Just think about the geographical, demographic setup of this place on earth at this time. This is national Israel. 
made up of all the tribes, mingled with Samaritans and others in their midst. Jesus had to pass through Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee. He increased the nation and he lessened the dimness of anguish, but there was little joy. Think about it. There should be proportionate increase in joy with numbers, but there was not. Though he was multiplying the nation in size by there being more Israelites, he hadn't increased their joy. They were under the oppression and control of what empire? Rome. Rome. Does Luke 13 tell us that Pilate killed 13 of those Galileans while they were offering their sacrifices? Does it tell us that? He had not increased their national joy. They were bigger. They had multiplied. Some of them had regathered, and they were scattered. Let me tell you, they were scattered to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. James 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, to the strangers scattered in Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and so forth. They're scattered, those Jews. That's why there were synagogues in Macedonia, in Macedonia and Achaia and in Asia Minor. I hope, I hope that you're following me. Rome controlled the subject area and killed Galileans with their sacrifices. When they weren't being killed, they were expected to take a trip and pay taxes. So Joseph and Mary were called up out of the city of Nazareth to go 70 miles or 60 miles to Bethlehem of Judea to pay taxes. Does that bring a lot of joy when you have a foreign power killing you while you're offering, while you're practicing religion and then taxing you? So you're missing that joy. And he didn't increase the joy of those two things. But the real joy of those two events, there are two things that make men happy. Well, there's more things, and ladies, I'm just sorry, but you don't make the cut this time. I'm sorry. There's two things that make men happy. Professional and financial success and military victory. There is nothing like a military victory. What did we do in New York City after we won World War II? We did it twice. It's called a, a ticker tape parade. And you'll see it in the second half. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. But you know, as these Galileans harvested, they had to pay taxes to Rome. And who was the military victor in this part of the world? It wasn't them. It was their opponent and adversary, the Roman Empire. Compared to the joy that was under David, there was not such peace and prosperity. The Bible tells us about David and Solomon, that David extended the empire greatly all the way to the Euphrates River, all the way to the Nile River. And every man sat under his own fig tree and drank from his own cistern. The Bible tells us that. There was great peace in Israel. There had been no prophets until John the Baptist and Jesus. So no revelation for 400 years. Since Malachi to Matthew, no revelation. So he had multiplied the nation but hadn't increased the joy. They were bigger. There was more of them. But they weren't living in a joyful state. It was still dimly dark, and this light burst forth. But it was only believed by a few. The they of 9-3 is the people, and the they and the them of 9-2. You don't have a plural antecedent in the first part of 9-3. It's back in 9-2. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. Does the New Testament tell us they are not all Israel which are of Israel? Should we remember that? Has Isaiah already taught us that? Right. That though there would be a remnant that would return, 
his people would be a tenth. Verse 3 of Isaiah 9. God hast multiplied the nation. You say it's in the past tense. Well, five and six, five is in, verse 6 is in the present tense. For unto us a child is born. Verse 2 is in the past tense. How excited. Do you want to, do you want to really argue about the past tense and the present tense and the future tense of a prophet? They use all kind of tenses. Because look at verse 2. It's past tense, and it's still 650 years away, or 700 years away. The prophet, once he goes into the future, looking back, he's saying, what have you done? And God had multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy, the people of verse 2, the elect remnant of verse 2, the them and the they of verse 2, they joy, and notice what it says, they joy before thee. This is not carnal joy of a carnal Jew. This is spiritual joy of a spiritual Jew. They joy before thee with the full joy that the rest of the nation doesn't have because of the oppression of Rome. What, how, what do they joy like before God? How excited did they get? Well, measured by two things, as excited as men can get. How excited do men get? A big raise for big bucks. I hope you all know that. You know, we're not farmers. If there's a couple farmers in here, you're a gentleman farmer or you're a gardener. You're not really a farmer. You know, a farmer, when he puts his, his investment of capital into the field and then waits four months or five months and has a tremendous harvest or he feeds little lambs and sheep and he watches that wool grow every day, that wool grow every day until he can shear all that wool off and have how many paydays does a farmer get in a year? About one. If you only had one payday, would you be happy on that Friday? I think you'd go to TGIF. You'd be happy. And if when you win a military victory, we have ticker tape parades, the celebration, the fear of death is gone. And there's more than that. In old times, there's spoil. Let's take everything they owned, including their wives, children, oxen, asses, wagons, furniture, and let's take it home and show mama what we got her. That's a lot of celebrating. And they, they joyed before thee. In verse 3, they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now this verse has caused Bible translators and commentators great grief because it says, didn't increase the joy, but they joyed about as high as you can joy. Well, it's two different categories. That's how you make it reconcile. Do you know how they reconcile it? They change the first clause so that it reads, this is the new versions. Thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. Oh no, we go with our King James Bibles and we work it until we figure it out. Ride me, spur me, put me up sweaty in the barn. I want to be your workhorse. There is a very obvious explanation and the they is a plural pronoun looking for an antecedent and the antecedent is in the people of verse 2. 
They, the elect remnant that we've already learned about in chapter 6 that we know about from Romans 9, 6, where it says, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. They, the elect portion of the nation, joy before thee. It is spiritual joy. It is holy joy. According to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. They are celebrating about as much as they can. And as soon as you open the pages of the New Testament, they rejoiced with great joy. They rejoiced with great joy as you flip through the pages of the New Testament and, and as you meet people meeting John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is holy joy, acceptable to God for the great light of Messiah their King from verse 2. The great lesson, the great issue for us is to examine ourselves about our level of joy in Christ. Do we get more excited about Him than we do about a promotion and a raise? Do we get more excited about Him than some victory in our lives? I, I shared with you this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, joy unspeakable and full of glory. The eunuch, alone in the desert, alone in the desert, comes up out of the waters of baptism in that oasis. Philip disappeared, bless his heart. What does it say about the eunuch? He went on his way rejoicing because he had seen a great light. One of the first Gentiles had seen a great light. Philip, is the prophet speaking of himself or another man? And Philip preached to him Jesus. He saw a great light. I could go on and on. I, I got to read Acts 8.8. 8. It's about Samaria. It's where Philip was before he went and baptized the eunuch. It's Acts 8.8. 8. It's the city of Samaria. And there was great joy in that city. Great joy in that city. Great joy in that city. What had Samaria been? As a city, the capital of Israel. There was great joy in that city. As a man from the tribe of Judah was preached to them by Philip, the evangelist. Thank you, Heavenly Father. There's so much more that could be said. What about Christians that have little to no joy? Do they see the light of the world? Have they ever seen him? Why aren't you happy? Why are you so negative? Why are you so critical? Why are you so bland? Why are you so bored? Life is exciting. Have you ever seen the light of the world? There's no evidence of it because it should be great joy. What about Christians that joy and get excited about this life's vanities? Do they have everlasting life? Or are you multiplied, but you don't have the joy increased in the real things? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. We do not want to be content with a technical analysis and dissection of Isaiah 9.3. We want to have the joy that they had. We want a joy before God. We want a joy as measured by the two most exciting things that can happen in a man's life. The big payday of harvest and a military victory over a life-threatening, family-threatening, nation-threatening enemy. Those are huge events. And we should celebrate like that. Verse 4. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. The day of Midian is to compare it to Gideon. Gideon took on the Midianites that were as numerous as the sandwiches by the seashore with 300 men, and they had something in their right hand and something in their left hand. I forgot what those two things are. Could you help me? In the day of Midian, what did those 300 men have? A of oh, a pitcher. 
that they were to break and it had a lamp inside and a trumpet. Oh, sort of like the light of the world, huh? And sort of like preachers blasting on trumpets. I don't want to push that one too far, but it fits. And it fits very nicely, by the way. Um, God did it. God lifted the yoke of the Midianites off them. Right. Not the 32,000 initially came out to Gideon, and not the 10,000 that he had after test number one, just the 300, and they didn't have to fight. Do you know why they didn't have to fight? Because the Midianites were fuel for themselves, and they killed themselves, and they, they all killed each other. We're going to get to that if we can. That's, that's verse 4. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden. He broke, he broke the yoke of the Assyrian burden. He broke the yoke of the Babylon bourbon, bourbon, burden, the Persian, the Greek. And there was the Roman upon them. But I want to tell you something about this verse. While I can give you all kinds of cross-references and show you from chapter 10, look at 10.5. 10.5. Oh, Assyrian, the rod of mine anger. Do we have the word rod in Isaiah 9.4? Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. O Assyrian, the rod. Yep, yep, yep. We can do that, and I can multiply that five to ten times with cross-references. But there is a spiritual fulfillment, and I am going to make a spiritual fulfillment of Isaiah 9-4 because of verses 1 through 3 and verses 6 and 7, and because of this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I had some of the greatest pleasure in my recent life last night Listening to Alexander Scorby, read me Luke chapter 1. Those 80 verses are phenomenal. Sherry and I looked at each other like we were hearing things we had never heard before. I just, I just kept looking at her. Can you believe this? You say, well, I guess it's been a while since you read Luke 1. Yeah, but it's just beautiful. Amen. It's the angel talking to Zacharias. And then it's Elizabeth talking to Mary. And then it's Mary talking to Elizabeth. And then it's Zacharias under inspiration unloading. And it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. You know, I love, for you ladies and girls, I shouldn't promise something before it happens. Wednesday night may be about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She believed. Zacharias, the priest, didn't. And I love the angel. Oh, I stand in the presence of God. Here I am. You're scared to death, but you don't want to believe that what I said is going to happen. You're going to be dumb for a while. It's just beautiful. I just love it. But Mary believed. She just says, how, how is it going to happen since I'm a virgin? Oh, just, it's just beautiful. That did not help my time issue. Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 71. This is, let's start at verse 68. This is Zacharias full of the Holy Ghost. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Redeemed them. Saved them. Bought them back from some controlling power. And hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn of salvation. As he spoke with the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Would that include Isaiah? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Did Jesus deliver them from Rome? No, he did not. Did Jesus deliver them from other enemies that are worse than Rome, Greece, Persia, Babylon, and Assyria? Amen. 
can you think of a few? Lust, sin, lies, Satan, the Jews, death, the grave, and hellfire. There's just a few. You say, but you're spiritualizing. Yes, I am. Thank you. Because of Luke chapter 1, I'm always going to let the New Testament dictate how I look at Old Testament verses, especially when they're sandwiched by verses that I obviously know are about the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. And verse 74, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. It doesn't say make more money. It doesn't say build a bigger house. And it doesn't say buy more acreage about being delivered from these enemies. It says that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. Righteousness and holiness. It's a spiritual fulfillment, brethren. It's a spiritual fulfillment. The yoke was taken off. The burden was lifted. Back to Isaiah chapter 9. The New Testament explains the old. Oh, nope, you don't get to go back there yet. Luke chapter 4. One more, then we've got to go. And we've, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, I want you to hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came to Nazareth in verse 16. Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And amen. That fulfills Isaiah 9.4 about deliverance from enemies other than Rome. There were other things troubling these people. Right. We come to verse 5. Romans 9, I mean Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 5. Isaiah 9.5. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Every battle, every military conflict, every battle of soldiers is with confused noise, especially in a day of face-to-face -face combat. There was, listen, there was yelling and screaming. There was yelling when you thought that you were taking the ascendancy over your opponent. And then there was yelling of fear and fright when you thought that you were about to lose and be killed. There was yelling for com companies to dispatch and move to different places. There were warnings about the enemy moving its forces. It's all just, that's just a very practical statement about the ordinary war, a natural war. Every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood. By the time you get home, there's blood, their blood, your blood, covering everything you've got in face-to-face -face combat. But this, what this? The deliverance from enemies of verse 4, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. The enemies of God's people that rejoice in the coming of Jesus Christ would have their enemies burned up and destroyed. Don't think literally. 
though literally does apply to some enemies. But fire is used in the Bible over and over and over as a symbol. And this is another way that we study the Bible because we look at how symbols are used and fire is used because it is so destructive and all it needs is to get started and the fuel for it is the object of it. And God destroyed our enemies. Jesus Christ lit the fire against sin, death, hell, grave, and destroyed it all. And so Isaiah 9.5 is a description of an ordinary natural battle when it's face-to-face combat, soldiers, it's a bunch of confused noise and chaos, stabbing, slashing, shooting, shooting arrows at each other, and their garments are rolled in blood. But this is going to be different because Jesus Christ will do it all. Do we have any, can I show you a natural application of it? Chapter 10 and verse 16, so that it's Assyria. I want, I want you to note that when the prophet is talking against Assyria, like he is in this context, you can find these, but our context is beyond this. Our context pushes us to the beginning of the New Testament era. In Isaiah 10 and verse 16, Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. It's a simile. It's a similitude. It's a metaphor. There wasn't a real fire, but under it's going to look like it because he's going to take the glory of Sennacherib and the Assyrian Empire and burn it. Because there's nothing quite like burning something. When you really want to get rid of something, what do you do to it? Just throw it in the trash? Or do you want to burn it? What enemies? What burden was lifted? Lust, sins, sin, lies, Satan. The Jews, death, grave, hellfire. We were delivered from all of those. By whom? The one that appeared in Galilee and, and brought the great light of the gospel truth to that part of the world and brought gospel truth to us, the one that is now to be identified. Verses 6 and 7. Is Jesus going to come in flaming fire? Yes. Is he going to destroy? Did he already destroy the enemies of the Christians in 70 AD? Yes. What did Jesus say about it? In Luke 21, which is the companion chapter to Matthew 24 and Mark 13, he said, when you see these things begin to happen, when you see all these signs begin to happen about the great tribulation and the armies surrounding Jerusalem, then lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. That was a salvation. That was a redemption. And he burned up their city. Matthew 22, 7. And see, we can run this and just see it fulfilled in so many different ways that it's just beautifully perfect. And is Jesus Christ going to be revealed from heaven in flaming fire with fervent heat that will melt the universe as we now know it? According to 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2 Peter chapter 3, yes, indeed. The next section is verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Next section, verses 8 through 12. The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and join his enemies together. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Verse 8 of Isaiah 9, The Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. Not every message of God is blessing and comfort. Some are warnings of judgment, and that was true in this case. And you want to hear both. We want to hear his comfort, and we want to hear his correction. And all the people shall know, Ephraim and Samaria. Ephraim is a nickname for the ten tribes called Israel. Ephraim, because it was the preeminent tribe. I wrote you in the Tuesday update and told you about this. It became the preeminent tribe of the northern kingdom. And the inhabitant of Samaria, that's the capital of the ten tribes of Israel. Their problem is pride and arrogance and stoutness of heart. Because here's how they respond to chastening. The bricks are falling down. Yes, the Assyrians have come in and broken down some of our brick buildings. But we will build with hewn stones. We will rise above the chastening. We will not repent. We will rebel in our pride. And we will rise above it and we'll make our city better. Can you think of anyone else that ever said that? It's the Edomites in Malachi chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. You say, where did you love us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? If when they return and try to build, I'll tear down. Right. It's when something bad is going on in your life and you think that you can ignore it and you're not going to turn to God, you're going to continue to rebel, you're going to be proud, I can handle this. And so you get another affliction. I can handle this one too. I can handle them both. You're wrong. You do not know what's coming because... His anger is still kindled and his hand is still reached out. He's going to hit you again. And so we have this warning here given to Jacob, which is the other name of Israel, which is for the 10 tribes that are identified in verse 9 and their sin identified in verse 10. The Assyrians had come in and broken down their brick buildings. They're going to build with hewn stones. The Assyrians came in and cut down their sycamore, garbage sycamore trees. That's what they are by comparison here. We'll change them into cedars. That is a terrible attitude to have toward the God of heaven. Be sure your sin will find you out. Therefore, because of that attitude, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason. Who was the adversary of reason? The king of Syria, reigning in the city of Damascus. Who was his adversary? Assyria. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason Assyrian Empire and all of its nations against him. Him is Israel. You can tell that from the next verse. And join his enemies together. All the enemies of Israel are going to come down 
on Israel for them saying, we are not going to repent, we're just going to rebuild. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind. The Syrians from the east. The, Philipp the Philistines from the west. The Mediterranean coast. And they shall devour Israel with open mouth. That's the him. That's the his. Right there. And so it's God bringing together the enemies of Israel, including the enemy of reason, because they trusted that reason, the king of Syria, could help them, but God was going to bless the enemy of reason to overcome him and then use the Syrians as well against Israel. And so we get to verse 12. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. We deal with a ferocious and righteous God. His anger is not turned away. He is not satisfied. We should have the Lord's Supper right now and again in an hour and a half. His anger is not satisfied about your sins. And there isn't a thing you can do to satisfy Him for your sins. His hand is still reached out. And do you know where His hand will be one billion years from now? it'll still be reached out in the lake of fire. Do you all understand that about him? They shall be tormented forever and ever because his anger is not satisfied and his hand is still reached out. Do we have a better future? We have seen a great light. We have seen a great light. Verses 13 through 17 of Isaiah 9. I'm sorry for the haste. The effort has been put into it. You can find the effort later. Verse 13, for the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them. That's what you always ought to do when he chastens you. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them. Neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail. Branch and rush in one day. The ancient and honorable, he is the head. And the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err. And they that are led of them are destroyed. Therefore, the Lord shall have no joy in their young men. Neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is an hypocrite and an evildoer. And every mouth speaketh folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God I represent. I am his ambassador. I never want to modify his message. This is his message. It is a true message, and it will be realized throughout eternity upon the heads of the wicked. And it was realized 2,000 years ago upon our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered his anger and his righteous indignation and judgment and justice on the cross of Calvary. The people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Chastening is to turn us to the Lord. Even good things are to turn us to the Lord. Don't you know that the goodness of God should lead you to repentance? Everything is to lead us to examine ourselves and to repent and turn to the Lord more perfectly. This is terrible. They don't turn to him that smiteth them. 
when we get spanked as children. How many times? The Bible tells us that it ordinarily works. We get spanked. We don't want that pain anymore. So we say, I'm sorry, Daddy. I'm sorry for doing that. I won't do it anymore. But Israel didn't do that. And so we have a therefore in verse 14. And we have a therefore in verse 17. God's in verse 14 going to cut off from Israel head and tail. That's good and bad, branch and rush, strong and weak. And one, a rush is a, is a weed. It's a reed. It's a weed that grows beside water. It's a reed. It has no strength. And a branch is much stronger than a rush. In one day, verse 15 tells us that the ancient and honorable men of Israel, they're the head. And the prophet that teaches lies, the Lord tells us what he thinks of ministers that don't preach the truth. He's the tail. For the leaders of this people, those false teachers cause them to err. And they that are led of them are destroyed. When the ministry is bad, people are going to lose. Because the Bible says, Take heed unto thyself and to the doctrine, continue in them. For in so doing thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. But it wasn't happening in Israel. The leaders of the people were causing them to err. And so God was going to destroy them all, top to bottom, good and bad, strong and weak. Therefore, the Lord shall have no joy in their young men. Ordinarily, young men are a wonderful blessing of a nation. Young men are a wonderful blessing of a church. And no girl or young woman should feel slighted at all. You should be thankful for the emphasis in our church, and you should be praying and doing due diligence to get one of those young men. Therefore, the Lord shall have no joy in their young men. He wouldn't care one bit about the young men. He'd grind them under in one day. And he'll not have mercy on their fatherless and widows. He's not going to show mercy. Look at the Lord is no respecter of persons. When there is sin and it's time for judgment, he doesn't care who you are or what situation you're in. He's going to judge. This is our God. But we have a Savior. Don't misunderstand me. But right now, I'm not in the saving verses. I'm in these verses. And these verses are true. For everyone is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. Let's only speak wisdom, brethren. Let's not do evil. Let's do righteousness. And let's be sincere and honest and not hypocrites, or he doesn't care who you are or what you've accomplished. He will destroy you. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And the last lesson of the chapter, verses 18 through 21. For wickedness burneth as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry and he shall snatch on the left hand and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Wickedness was burning up the nation. 
the nation was going up in smoke. Where I'm in verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 9. We've already had the sins given to us. Everyone's a hypocrite. Everyone's an evildoer. And everyone's mouth speaketh folly in verse 17. And wickedness was burning as the fire. It's devouring the briars and thorns. That's the lower class of the nation. And it'll kindle in the thickets of the forest. Those are the small young trees of the forest. It's going to kindle in them and they're going to mount up like the lifting up of smoke. It's going to look like a blast furnace. The wickedness is burning up the nation. When we look at America in 2019, isn't that verse somewhat descriptive of our own nation? Going up in smoke? Going up in flames? Low class, upper class, middle class, everybody burning together in their wickedness. As verse 17 described it. Verse 19, through the wrath of the Lord, this is my God. This is my God, and I'm so sorry he's not preached in hardly any place. Watch what God's going to do. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, God gets angry? You bet he gets angry. And his anger is not satisfied yet. His anger is not turned away. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened. They're going to be rewired, just like Romans chapter 1 teaches. This is a little different. They're going to be rewired. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. They will destroy themselves. They'll be the fuel, they'll be the fire, and they'll burn up their own nation. No man shall spare his brother. An insatiable cruelty, insatiable greed, insatiable covetousness of what others have. No man would spare his brother. What happened in our civil war? Do you understand that our civil war was worse in its consequences on our nation than all other wars combined? Look at 2 Kings 15. 2 Kings 15. For those of you that have read this chapter, you already know where I'm going, and you'll remember the verses as soon as I show them to you. No man shall spare his brother, because the Lord is going to darken them in his wrath for their wickedness. Wickedness is burning up the whole nation. The whole nation is being consumed by it. They're all involved. They're all engaged. They're all contributing to the flames and the smoke going up, like in America right now. The church, the pulpits are guilty in America. The churches in America are guilty. The things they're doing today couldn't have been imagined 50 years ago without prophecies in the Bible. It's unbelievable. 2 Kings 15, remembering the words, no man shall spare his brother. Look at 2 Kings 15.10. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him, that's the king of Israel, and smote him before the people, and slew him, and reigned in his stead. That's verse 10. He will not spare his brother of his own nation, but he, kill, he assassinates him. Verse 14. For Menahem, the son of Gadai, went up from Terzah, and came to Samaria, and smote Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, and slew him, and reigned in his stead. Verse 25. But Pekah, the son of Remaliah, a captain of his, conspired against him and smote him in Samaria in the palace of the king's house with Argob and Ariah and with him 50 men of the Gileadites, and he killed him and reigned in his room. And verse 30, And Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and smote him and slew him and reigned in his stead in the 20th year of Jotham, Jotham the son of Isaiah. Look at these atrocities. Look at it. In, in just a stretch of a few verses, we've got four assassinations. No man shall spare his brother because God's going to turn them against them. 
Remember Midian? Gideon, Gideon broke open his lamps, blasted his trumpets, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, they all killed each other. They did that with, with Jehoshaphat. The Lord said to Jehoshaphat, stand still and see the salvation of God. Right. Jehoshaphat stood still and they all killed each other. And that is what God was going to do to his own people here in Israel. Look at verse 16. This is even worse. Oh, I went, I left it. 2 Kings 15, 16. I'll read it to you. It's in the middle of that mess. Then Menahem smote Tifsa and all that were therein and the coast thereof from Terza. He smote them because they opened not to him after he had assassinated their king. Therefore he smote it and all the women therein that were with child he ripped up. No man shall spare his brother. What, what do we rip up at the rate of a million a year? Unborn children. This is the judgment of God and the wrath of God. Through the wrath of God, through the vehicle, the means, the provocation, is God turning these wicked people over to their depraved minds. If it weren't for the grace of God holding us back, any man, every man, is capable of any sin and every sin. And the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. Verse 20, and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He will not be satisfied. These are like the blood, the leeches, the horse leeches of Proverbs chapter 30. He'll grab something from a brother and take it away from him and still be greedy and covetous for more. And he shall eat on the left hand and they shall not be satisfied. Because the, the point is, do not be confused by the, the wording because you've already been told what the lesson is. The lesson is, no man's going to spare his brother. These are brothers. He's going to grab from somebody on his right and snatch it away from him. Look at the terminology that the Lord uses. Snatch it away, and it tells us he'll still be hungry. He still wants more. And he's going to snatch on the left hand, and they won't be satisfied. The issue is not famine. The issue is violence, cruelty, and tyranny. Hatred insatiable greediness. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Not this arm, that arm, and that arm. Brothers, your helpers, the arm of flesh, your neighbors, your relatives, your nation. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm, because remember, the, this is so easy, and there's cross-references. I don't have time for the cross-references right now. Because the lesson is, no man shall spare his brother. Verse 21. This will tell you. If all you got to do is read the passage. It's not gnawing on your own arm. Have some men been so hungry in prison camps that they've gnawed on their own arm? Of course. That is not the lesson here. The lesson is this. The arms of those around you, you're going to take from them and destroy them and not spare them. Manasseh will eat Ephraim and Ephraim will eat Manasseh. Now, the Lord couldn't have got any more delicate and intimate with Israel than those words. Do you know those two brothers? They were both, both born to Joseph. They were always like this. Always like that. Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh will snatch away and eat Ephraim and Ephraim will snatch away from Manasseh and eat them, and they together shall be against Judah. Remember Pekah 
and 120,000 mighty men of valor, and then 200,000 prisoners of their own flesh and blood coming out of Judah. We've, we've read all. This is the judgment of the Lord. It says, through the wrath of the Lord, this happens. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. His wrath is not yet satisfied. For this sentence is repeated in 10.4. Can you look ahead and see it in 10.4? So how many times is that? Three times in chapter 9, one time in chapter 5, one time in chapter 10, five times. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. After one million years in the lake of fire, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Is this five-fold repetition coming for you? If you do not know and obey this God and His Son, your eternal destiny is torment under the wrath of God forever. If you do know and obey this God and His Son, and you show it by your joy in the Redeemer that He sent you, it proves His grace in your life. It proves that that light of verse 2 shined in you and upon you, and that you had the joy before God of verse 3 because of Him who is in verses 6 and 7 that we'll get to after our break. I trust that this effort in Isaiah 9 helps you understand the chapter and helps you understand the wrath of God and helps you understand the blessing of the light of truth and the blessing of Him who is called Wonderful, the Son of David, in His kingdom and on His throne forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is committed to save me. Is He committed to save you? I have some great verses to share with you in the second service about the zeal of the Lord of hosts committed to never losing us through Jesus Christ, His Son. Amen. Amen. Amen.